Hi, everyone. This is Congress to Cubicle, a podcast where we look at the efficiency, effectiveness, and credibility of government. I'm your host, Steve Goodrich, the CEO of the Center for Organizational Excellence. First up, we're going to address the presidential transition. Our guest today is Max Steyer, the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max has an illustrious career in both the judicial and executive branches of government, and for many years has been leading the partnership. Thank you very much for having me, Steve. So in talking about the presidential transition, tell me a little bit about what the partnership does to support the transition. I'll try to make this not too long of a story, uh, but we run a part of an organization called the Center for Presidential Transition, and we started this work in 2008 uh, when one of my colleagues, Katie Malek, came to me and said, uh, we started as an organization in 2001. This will be our first transition. What are we going to do about it? It was an excellent question. And I, of course, turned it back around to her to say, what should we do about it? And then we went uh, through a sort of uh, inquiry process and realized that transitions had been run as Groundhog Day exercises, really a fundamental process but there were no available resources. The best people could get would be oral history. So long story short, we began creating uh, a learning system, an effort to try to actually gather both the people and the resources that had been generated around uh, transitions and created a template, a guidebook on how to do transitions. So we um, helped all three key stakeholder groups, the challengers with the you know, a literally play-by-play description of how they should organize and operate the transition, the outgoing or potentially outgoing administration about how they help to get ready for that possibility and approach a potential second-term transition, and then the career workforce. So we actually have a guidebook for them about how they can organize to prepare for the possible handover to a new team as well. So our center has become really the, the primary resource on transition planning and also the Grand Central for other organizations that are involved in or adjacent to this area to help get those resources to those three stakeholder groups as well. Do you provide any support for the nominees? We do. Um, We actually have a a whole program we started this cycle called Ready to Serve. And it is a series of resources for people who are considering pursuing a, a political appointment, how you go about doing it, So there are resources on our website, as well as uh, webinars that we've done. Uh, And then if someone is actually selected as an appointee, as part of the transition work we've done, we've created a lot of different resources, including uh, help for understanding how to get through the confirmation process. We have a whole curriculum called Ready to Govern, which is based on trying to help onboard new political appointees uh, so that they can understand, in in my language, it's What's different about working in government that no one in their right mind would understand? And our methodology was pretty basic. And it was asking probably, if not uh, thousands, hundreds and hundreds of political appointees, what did they wish they were told on day one or pre-day one that they learned the hard way after six months or a year? Uh, So in any event, we have a lot of resources for the whole life cycle. If you're interested in a political appointment, if you get selected, if you're in seat, sort of checklists on what you should be doing in your first two weeks. And we're building it out. Uh, so again, our goal is really to get better and better at providing support for ensuring that, that our government works better and that the leaders have what they need to, to do their jobs well. So, you know, uh, the, the public hears a lot about transition on the news, transition teams, landing teams, getting ready, 
making appointments, so forth and so on. But what's I'm sure there's a lot going on in the background. What's sort of the anatomy of a, of a presidential transition? So, you know, it's, it's fun to hear you say that the public hears, you know, a lot about this in the news because that's not always been the case. And I think this cycle has received more attention uh, than, than ever before. And I think 2016 was probably the second most uh, attention that transitions have received. And it's really important. And I think just to rewind the tape for a second is to understand that our government is the most important problem solver that we have. It's the only tool we have for collective action as a society that has the imprimatur of the public and taxpayer resources behind it to solve big problems. And the transition is all about ensuring that whoever is responsible for running the government is as ready as they possibly can be to do that well on second one. And so it's a very big undertaking. When you think about what a transition is, it means taking over a $5 trillion, $4 million person hundreds of operating units, and in my view, unfortunately, you know, 4,000 political appointments that that new administration makes. It's huge. I mean, it dwarfs any sort of uh, private sector analog of, of, a, of a takeover or an era of a merger. And so it's a big task. And there are some core components of what goes into doing it well. And it has to start, uh, in our view, really in earnest in the, in the spring of the election year. Mm -hmm. And the core components really are, in my view, central, the personnel side. So, you know, you have 4,000 political appointments that are now the norm for incoming administration. 1,200 of them require Senate confirmation, you know, focusing on who the right people are, what your process is going to be, and all the other issues associated with that, your ethics rules, et cetera. It's a very, very big undertaking. A second big part of the, of the responsibility is looking at trying to understand what's going on inside the agencies. So you need, you know, real-time information about what's happening in order to be able to prepare those appointees and also to prepare your plans. Uh, so that's the agency review process that you referenced. There's the conversion of the, you know, candidates' campaign promises into action. So those are the 100-day, 200-day plans that have to be developed and worked through. There's the care and feeding of the, of the president-elect, how you're going to manage the president-elect's time during the formal transition process. And then in this cycle, I think the Biden team were wise to also think about the black swans, you know, issues that might come up. We're in a world that is moving faster and faster and is more and more dangerous. And the transition has to pivot to address those issues. And so thinking about, you know, whether it's the vaccine rollout or the cyber attack or, you know, the longer term, but equally you know, critical issues like climate change, you know, so, so really preparing around some of those big issues is another, you know, big piece that has to happen. It's an extraordinary effort. You think about, in my mind, I think a little bit of it is that it's the universe pre-Big Bang, you know, so, so you're organizing everything. And then on January 20th at noon, you know, you, you, you own the whole thing. And it's a, it's a massive and really fundamentally vital uh, organization for, for our country and for the world. Well, having, you know, sort of been, I'm involved in the lexicon of government and watching transitions happen. It seems to me that, that Biden even started much earlier than others. Do you see differences in the Biden transition than in others? You know, interestingly, you know, we typically organize in the springtime a, a meeting of, uh, of all the campaigns that are going on and to, to introduce them to the transition concepts that, that we think are important for them to get moving on. And I would say that the Biden team has been 
better organized to date. And again, you know, I think I believe transition actually extends into into an administration, but uh, they they've been better organized and and more focused than anyone else previously. And a lot of it has to do with the leadership that they had. Uh, Ted Kaufman, you know, is is knows transition issues, and we've worked with him forever on these issues. Uh, Jeff Zients is you know someone who is deeply deeply aware of the management challenges of, of government and also gifted. So the, the two of them really were central to putting this all together. There are differences. One of the most fundamental ones is that in addition to all the normal challenges, which are extraordinary, they had to do this virtually. You know, they had 175,000 square feet, at, you know, Department of Commerce that didn't get used. I mean, they, the normal way you organize is you bring people together uh, and they couldn't do it. So that's been a, a big change from the, from the past and made harder what is already extremely difficult. You know, they've approached, I think, this issue of the challenge of getting your Senate confirmed people in differently. So, um, one, they'll have more nominations than anyone previously. You know, on day one, they've had, uh, you know, over 50. And I believe that the next highest was the Obama uh, team, which had 42 nominated. And again, that's not confirmed. And then they've been very focused on bringing in the non-confirmed positions at a much higher clip. And, and I, and they have, again, exceeded the numbers on prior administrations and, and getting those non-Senate confirmed positions filled quickly. Yeah, they, they, they have an extraordinarily difficult hand that they, that they've been dealt. They have been better prepared, uh, and they still will have a heck of a road ahead of them. Well, and, and Jeff Zients is one of the most organized people I know. So if, if he can't do it, nobody can, uh, certainly to get there. You mentioned some of the challenges. And with those challenges is a need to get those 1,200 people through confirmation fairly rapidly. Is Congress going to be ready for that? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I think, look, um, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it takes two to tango on the on the, on the Senate confirmed positions. And again, I think the Biden team, you know, was was faster out of the gate than anybody else. Um, and the Senate, frankly, for a lot of different reasons, has been slower. Uh, so, you know, one, the historical trends are terrible. The amount of time it's taken on average to confirm people has doubled from the Reagan administration to the Trump administration. You know, obviously, the slowness in organizing the Senate, the issues around impeachment trial, the need for vital, you know, stimulus legislation. I mean, it is a, it's a, you know, it's a traffic jam. And part of the problem is that the Senate is a, is a narrow highway. If you can call it a highway, it might be country road. Uh, so, you know, again, it's a classic problem, narrow pipe and too much that you're trying to jam through it. And so one of the things I would say is, yeah, the Senate can expedite things. They can do some, they can improve the process. Overall, I think we, we need some system reform. I mean, we need to have many, many fewer Senate confirmed positions. It just, even as you said, Jeff Science is amazing. You can line up everything right and still not going to get done in real time. I mean, the idea that the high watermark up until now for any administration to get a Senate confirmed team in place was the Obama administration. And after a hundred days, uh, you know, really critical, to, you know, first three months plus, Obama got 69 of the 1200 plus in place. And it's all downhill from there. You know, Donald Trump got 28. That's, you know, there are definitely things you can do to on the on the transition side to improve the numbers. But the system itself is designed for um, for impossibility here. And, you know, it, again, the metaphor for me is sort of like 
the Super Bowl and, you know, the game starts, you got your quarterback and your center and no one else. It's just not the way to play the game. Uh, you need your full team on the field um, when the game starts. And that's, you know, pretty much impossible to get done with the system we have. So fewer Senate confirmed positions. And in my view, many, many fewer political appointees overall would make this process run a lot easier, not easy, but easier. Uh, and it would make our government run better too. Well, now with, you know, and something we haven't seen since 2001, where you're going to have split committees with equal number of R's and D's, um, and perhaps those that'll just, they, I've even seen talk of taking some nominees directly to floor vote, but do you see that, you see things getting stuck in committee a little bit? You know, it's hard to predict. Um, you know, part of the problem here is that even with, you know, the utmost cooperation, there's just so much the Senate needs to get done and it's not an institution built for speed. Absolutely. That, yeah. So everything, every bump becomes problematic. You know, you're driving on the beltway and you're in a traffic jam and you're like, why? Uh, there's no there's no rationale for it. And the answer is that it's an overloaded system. And that's what we have with the Senate. It's an overloaded system. There are definitely things that could be done to make it easier and faster that doesn't require legislation. But there are the big change is really, you know, in, in 2011, am I getting that right? No, it's 20, 2010. We were involved in legislation. Oh, maybe it was 2011 that helped reduce the number of Senate confirmed positions by, I think it was 169 spots. Mm-hmm. And I would describe that as a slice of bread, not a, not a half a loaf, not a quarter loaf. Yeah. Um, and we need, we need a many, many more slices of bread uh, to, to improve the system. And I think you can get your accountability in other ways and again, make the system work a lot better. So that's, that's going to need to be part of it. There was a whole commission that was set up to talk about other ways that they could streamline things, make it easier for the nominees. I mean, it's a it's an obstacle course for the nominees themselves, and that chases away a lot of good talent. Um, th- this is this is really important. I mean, the leadership matters, and having confirmed people in is important for the functioning of government and also for the Senate's ability to you know fulfill its constitutional responsibility of advice and consent. So uh, right now we're in a lose lose world, and there is a win win one. Yeah, and with all the issues that are facing this administration, it seems like it's all in everybody's best interest to try to move quickly, as quickly as possible, and make the right decision. And the shoe will be on the other, you know, the other other foot eventually as well. So this is again, this should be viewed as nonpartisan, uh, good government. And as I said, I think it improves the accountability. I mean, look what the Trump administration did is they just sidestepped these issues by, you know, having actings in or people that were in truth acting, but titled something else. So I don't think anyone benefits here. And, and I know ultimately that government performance gets hurt. You know, let's, let's turn to a different topic. What recommendations do you have for, you know, just the rank and file of government to help, help the transition and move? Because they're the folks that go through this every four or eight years, right? They're the ones that go through it every four or eight years. And they're the ones that get the work of government done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at the end of the day, in my view, they're the heart and the engine room of, of our government. So absolutely. And, you know, in terms of advice, you know, one of the things that I would, um, you know, recommend to to the career, uh, especially the career leaders, is to lean in. I mean, the natural tendency is to hang back and be uncertain because you don't know what the new leaders want. Um, you don't want to, you know, make a wrong step. But at the end of the day, I believe that 
a better course is to take the initiative. You know, the Biden team, in addition to being better organized than prior um, examples, they've also named a lot of people who understand how government works, who've been there before, and in many instances, been in the agencies that they're now responsible for, sometimes in the same jobs. I mean, someone I love is David Cohen, uh, you know, who is the deputy at CIA, going back to that job. He's fantastic. Or there's someone like Ally Mayorkas who you know, ran a component and then was the deputy secretary is now, you know, secretary. You couldn't have a better profile for understanding how to work the agency well. But even for those people, they don't know what's happened over the last four years. And my advice to the career people is don't wait, don't hang back, lean in, you know, create a relationship of trust at the front end with the new leadership team by helping them succeed and helping them understand, you know, what should be happening helping them understand what's good that should be carried forward. I think is one of the things that often gets overlooked. Usually there's a, a focus on, you know, what's broken, what do we need to change? That's, you know, something we don't like. Early victories are inevitably things that are already in the pipeline and finding those good things that have happened will, and flagging them so they can get pushed by the new leadership team is a, is a role that the career workforce can play that I think is, is truly important. And in particular around this, there's been a lot of lemonade created as a result of the response to the pandemic. We now have a government largely working rem, you know, uh, remotely and in many instances working better than it did before. And we should really be harvesting that innovation that's taken place uh, you know, by force of the challenges of the pandemic and making that our future you know, steady state and building on top of that. And, and, and I worry about the natural tendency of large organizations that are conservative to try to return to status quo ante rather than, you know, take advantage of the learning, the hard learning that's been happening over the last, you know, 10 plus months. So anyway, those would be examples of things that I think the career team can do uh, that would show real value. The other thing is to get, to keep the political team as focused as possible on the institutional health. We need to refresh the workforce. There are big morale challenges. Anyway, the career team can help the political team make those right choices too. Well, and it's, you know, right now it's a fast moving train that these these politicals are hopping onto, right? And within that, I'm sure there's differences between those that have prior government experience and those that are, are just spelling the word government for the first time coming in. Yeah, there definitely are, are real differences. And I think, you know, government's not an intuitive place in most instances. Mm-hmm. So, you know, understanding, you know, helping people not get tripped up, you know, whether it's the ethics rules or, you know, creating right relationship with the career staff, uh, you know, that's all super important, you know, in terms of, of making a difference and, and, and helping that new leadership team succeed. Now, I think, you know, the other challenge though, with people who've been there before is they sometimes think that they know everything they need to know and they're less willing to challenge orthodoxy as a result of that. So uh, again, I think a mix of people who've been there before and some that are new is good as long as they're working well together and they're helped to succeed. And I think, again, the onboarding period is really important. I mentioned the curriculum we have for new political appointees. To my mind, it's, it's who you pick, how you prepare them, and, and getting them to work well together. Those are the three pieces. And typically, the picking becomes the you know, focus of all the energy and the other two pieces drop off. And, and that, that's a mistake. So we've got, um, you know, the Biden administration has done a lot of work with their, the top tier, the secretaries, and even 
you know, in some cases, DEP secretaries and things like that. But then you've got the next tier, the GSAs and the OPMs and things like that. Do you see them coming soon? So, um, so, so the hesitancy I have, which is a focus on your point about coming soon. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think again, the Biden team has been, you know, more organized than prior any 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 prior transition mm-hmm. so far. You know, the Obama team was very uh, good in the transition in terms of again as a matter of historical comparison. Um, but then things dropped off, and a part of it was that they created a whole infrastructure to focus on the what they call the first wave uh, of appointments. And then that infrastructure dissipated and, and, and the responsibilities went to individual agencies, et cetera. So, you know, we, we still have a distance to travel here to see if the Biden organization continues uh, as well organized as it has been up until now. My hope is it will be. But again, you know, this is this is hard work. And it's what you said, which is it's a fast moving train. And the tendency is to focus on the urgent policy issues that are sitting on their desks and not pay as enough attention to the institutional capability. Uh, and part of that obviously is making sure the team is filled out. And when you said next layer down, I'm thinking assistant, you know, secretary uh, as well. Mm-hmm. But look, you know, GSA and OPM, you know, uh, administrator and director, to me, that's not second tier, that's first tier. Like if you really, there's so many personnel issues going on in government right now and OPM is central to them. OPM itself needs to be rebuilt, uh, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Getting their confirmed leadership in place ought to be, in my mind, a, a, a real priority there. And GSA too. One of the challenges for government is that there's not that much capability focused on the enterprise. You know, OMB is tiny. Um, you know, GSA and OPM are really the only two, you know, consequential, you know, significant organizations that again have that larger enterprise field of view. So getting them all working well, is a front-end responsibility to ensure that government is, is, is working effectively. Well, and a, and a lot of administrations haven't, you know, I've always commented on OMB as just so under-resourced with what, what, their, uh, what their intent is and what they need to accomplish. And that's, I don't know if any administration has been willing to look, look at that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think part of the problem is that there's a political calculus made that they don't want to show too much in the way of resources going to the EOP, the executive office of the president, which OMB falls within. And I think it's penny wise and pound foolish. I think it's, it's a mistake. Um, not that there aren't also room for improvement in the way that the current OMB resources are allocated. Uh, and a lot of this stuff, again, is, is, is done as a matter of historical precedent rather than really focusing on the needs of today against the priorities of now. I think your point is exactly right. It's under-resourced OMB is, and um, there should be an effort to realign the resources that are already there against the, the, the real needs. One person who I, I love talking about this is Dan Changerlini, who was very, very thoughtful on this. And former GSA. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Former GSA, former you know Treasury head of management, former OMB career staff, mm-hmm. former city uh, administrator in yeah. DC. You know the guy you know has you know worn pretty much every hat and uh, you know really knows how to do things creatively and well. So anyway, that's that that kind. But rethinking OMB is I think something that and the center of government writ large is another area of, of huge need. Yeah, I agree. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Do you see any um, 
over time, you know, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Carter, all the way up, do you see maturing of the transition process? Over no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I would, I would say there was an acceleration, mm-hmm. in particular, in my view, after 9-11. I think President Bush was clear-eyed about the need to improve transitions as a result of the dangerous world we operate in. And I think 9-11 was a wake-up call uh, for him and for the, you know, for, for a lot of folks um, in, in our country and in the government that we couldn't afford uh, bad transitions, that it was in fact a, uh, a fundamental vulnerability for us as a nation to do transitions poorly. And it certainly motivated President Bush and his team. And again, Josh Bolton to me is one of my public sector heroes who, who really was the driving force on the, the Bush administration's organization of the transition from Bush to Obama. I think that this notion that we were at war and that that a poor transition created real risk for us as a nation really has carried through. So you, know, you think about it, the, the Bush to Obama transition was very strong. The you know Obama team learned the same lesson uh, coming in, you know, in terms of having to deal with an economic crisis, uh, you know, as they were coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know Trump was a, it was a, it was an aberration, that's my hope. Um, who didn't fundamentally understand uh, what was at stake or the processes that were vital to, to, to put your arms around. Post-election, the team he put together in Chris Christie and Rich Bagger, who ran the, it was the executive director transition, was very strong. It was just, you know, once they won that they, that they fired Christie and sort of ignored all the work product that had been done. Um, and then you have obviously the Biden team, which has taken this very seriously. So I think if you think about this, that, the modern era, um, you know, uh, the last, uh, you know, you know, whatever it is to, to 9-11, really, I think it changed the game. I mean, it, it, you know, the 9-11 commission said it, you know, poor transition created a real problem for the response to 9-11. And we live in a world, whether it's a pandemic or, you know, an economic crisis or, you know, a cyber threats. I mean, you know, pick your poison. There are just so many dangers out there that are so fast moving that not focusing on a effective in addition to a peaceful transfer is vital to our, 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 our welfare as a country. So what are your recommendations for the first hundred days? What would you like to see done? What are your top three or four? So, uh, you know, again, I come back to this question of, of, of personnel. I think that there's no doubt that um, getting the team in place and up to speed and working well together has to be a, a top priority for uh, the Biden team. Um, I think that there's a critical need of, of, of rebuilding the, the career workforce. And when I say rebuilding, that includes, um, you know, creating uh, a real focus on the, the morale of the existing workforce. You know, we produce our best places to work rankings. Uh, the Trump team didn't even do uh, the 2020 survey on time. So we still don't have that data, but mm-hmm. the numbers were going down and going down in a lot of agencies in a big way. You know, it's, it's, it's a real problem because this is not about happy employees. This is about an environment where federal employees can actually produce um, good outcomes for the American public. And so to my mind, it's the report card on the leadership. So I think the Biden team taking this on and saying that we're going to uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna see this as as a primary part of our responsibility is to create the work conditions that allow 
you know, top career civil servants to, to, to thrive and succeed. The workforce needs to be refreshed. You know, it was already the case that we had barely over 6% of the workforce under the age of 30. And there's been substantial attrition in most agencies across government um, as a result of the four years of the Trump administration. So, you know, really doing the hard work of, of, of bringing a new generation of talent into government and ensuring that that, that, that that talent wants to stay. So it's not just about recruiting, it's about creating the conditions for retention. Uh, that should be one of the, the real top priorities. I think that revisiting the rules of our government, uh, you know, we've, you know, the last major overall, the civil service system was 40 years ago. I don't know of any other um, organization, public or private, that's thriving under the same rule set as, as existed 40 years ago. Our, our world has changed and the rules need to change as well. Um, some of the rules go back to, you know, you know, 70, 80 years ago. I mean, it just, you know, totally. So um, we need to have see a real attention to that. These are hard things to do given the press of, of immediate concerns, but they're all things that matter in the, at the front end because they, they, they're heavy lists that take a lot of time. And if you wait till your last year or whatever else it is to talent, to, to tackle them, it's not happening. So getting that stuff um, moved forward is, is really important. There's a lot of cleanup inside the agencies. I'm, I'm personally concerned about burrowing uh, that has taken place. It's hard to know. We don't have enough data to know how extensive it is, but it's clearly a real issue. I mean, it's a very long laundry list and it only gets done if you have great people working well with a career workforce and working well together to make it happen. Well, you mentioned some real tall orders and, and as you know, you know, I made a set of recommendations last summer, which I hope get adopted so we can really start, start strengthening, you know, this workforce and going forward, because that's going to be a key to getting an awful lot done. Max, I, I want to thank you for your time. Max Steyer, the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, an organization for me that has really filled a gap years ago that is necessary. And I, and I hope you can continue to partner with this administration and others on the way through. Well, Steve, thank, thank you so much for, uh, for this conversation and for all of your commitment to strengthening our government. In my view, it's an all-in proposition. We, we need everybody on board here to, to help our government succeed in helping all of us. Thank you, Max. We're all in this together. Yeah, thank you. So let's continue the conversation. You can find us on our YouTube channel, you can also email me at steve at centerforoe.com if you have any comments or suggestions for our podcast. We're here to talk about the efficiency and effectiveness of government. Our next guest will be David Walker, the former U.S. Comptroller General of the United States. We're going to be talking about his book, America in 2040, Are We Still a Superpower? You won't want to miss that. <laughs>